We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we began the first part and ended right before Christmas, and we're a few weeks back. We're continuing from uh, the second portion of the book of Acts, but uh, this morning we want to uh, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 14. As you're turning there, you may have heard the story of two brothers who were very rich, very wealthy, but also very crooked and dishonest. Both lived a very dishonest life without integrity. They used their wealth to cover their sinfulness and their scheming ways. And uh, they just happened to attend the same church where they gave uh, large sums of money to that church and maybe as a way to pacify their own, uh, I don't know, their own conscience or whatever. But suddenly one of the brothers died. One of the brothers died and passed away. And the pastor of the church was asked to preach the funeral. The surviving brother Uh, gave the pastor, when they were talking about the funeral, gave the pastor an envelope that had a large check that would pay off the church mortgage and property completely. Very large sum of money. And uh, he had one favor that he needed the pastor to do, that during the funeral he wanted the pastor to tell everybody that his brother was a saint. The pastor... Being a normal pastor, wanted that check, wanted that building to be paid off, but he wasn't sure if he could quite go that far. And so as the funeral uh, came that day and he was doing all the normal eulogy and and whatever and came to the place where he was talking about this brother, he remembered that check and how he wanted that being able to bless the church. But, and then the Lord gave him an array a of inspiration. And he said, you know, this brother, he was an ungodly sinner. He was wicked to the core, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. Well, I don't know if that check, uh, I hope he deposited it before he did that but uh, and gave it a few days for it to pass. But, you know, all of us desire, I hope, to uh, be remembered in thinking about what Scripture tells us. And I was thinking that it was almost a year within a few days of the death of Billy Graham. And uh, if you were here last year, he died on the 21st of February last year. And Billy Graham, that uh, following Sunday, I did a whole message on the life of Billy Graham. And so you can go online and find that. And really was talking about principles from Billy Graham's life as a a man of God, a man of integrity. But near the end of his life, uh, Dr. Graham, he really didn't care about all the medals and honors and accolades that were uh, given to him. Uh, And he didn't desire that people say a lot of nice things about him at his funeral but said this in an interview where he said the only thing he wanted to hear was, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set over you much. Enter into the joy of your master. I hope that as a believer, that would be what you would want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, it should be on the screen, he said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards or servants that they be found faithful. We want to view ourselves as being servants and our aim at being servants of God should be found to be faithful. That's what God desires for our life. And the title of the message this morning from Acts chapter 14 is we're going to look at marks of a faithful servant. Marks of a faithful servant in chapter 14. We're not going to go through, obviously, for time's sake. Chapter 14 is a, is a large chapter. But I want to kind of just zero in on this particular theme and looking at marks of a faithful servant and specifically looking at the life of Paul and Barnabas. Those are the two individuals that are very prominent now in the book of Acts and the unfolding and the growth of the church. We see Paul and Barnabas and their uh, traveling. They are just uh, finishing up their, what is called their first missionary journey. There's three that Paul would be a part of, and this first one was being uh, brought to a conclusion. But Paul and Barnabas are God's servants, and to just kind of draw out some principles of how we see God's faithfulness demonstrated in their life. But before we do that, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and ask and give thanks for, to God for His blessing on His Word this morning. Can we do that? Would you join me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we are grateful and thankful for Your presence uh, here today in this body, in this church. We're thankful for the Word of God. We thank You that as we listen to it, as we read it, as we hear it spoken, as we hear it taught, God, Lord, we're thankful that we have a Word that is without error, God, a Word that is without uh, mistakes, uh, we thank you, God, that as we read the Word, we read the Scripture, we're hearing the voice of God. We're hearing your words. And so may we take this time, God, to draw our attention, to listen, to allow the Holy Spirit to move and instruct us, we pray today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me or along in your Bibles. I'll be using the ESV, English Standard Version. And let's just pick it up in the beginning of chapter 14. And we're going to read different portions here as we walk through this. But look with me in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. And it'll kind of set the tone and where what is happening here. Now at Iconium, they, Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, non-Jews, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands." But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities in Laconia and to the surrounding country. And there 
they continue to preach the gospel. So already there is friction and pushback and persecution against Paul and Barnabas for preaching the gospel. Perhaps Paul had this in mind when he said in Galatians six seventeen how he said, I bear the marks of Jesus. And there's other accounts where Paul the apostle was brutalized and, and left for dead in many cases. But yet what we need to see here is that through it all, Paul the apostle, along with Barnabas and his other companions, but Paul uh, was faithfully continuing to serve Christ and continuing to minister the gospel of Jesus. And so this morning, as we look at uh, in the life of both Paul and Barnabas and for our own edification, marks of a faithful servant, God has given us these individuals to demonstrate marks of a faithful servant. I, as I said, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found as a faithful servant. And so there's some principles here that we could certainly uh, do a lot more than the five that I want to share this morning. There was many others, but to narrow it down for time, we're going to look and limit ourselves to five. The first is the mark of a faithful servant is the servant knows who they represent. First mark of a faithful servant is they know who they represent. A faithful servant points people to the living God and not to themselves. Let's pick it back up in Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, this is an amazing situation, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, in a language that I assume only Paul and Barnabas didn't quite understand, but in their native language, this is what they said. When they saw this miracle, they said, the gods, notice little g there, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, of this paganism, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. And we'll pick that up in just a minute. Uh, this, is a, this is an amazing thing because what was their response? They thought Paul and Barnabas were these mythological, of course, they didn't think it was mythological. Uh, they thought that, the, that Paul and Barnabas were these, these gods, these mythical gods that had somehow, somehow come down because, remember, these are pagans. When Paul was speaking to the Jews in the synagogue, he can open up the Old Testament Scriptures and reason with them from the Old Testament Scriptures. The pagans, the, you know, the, the Gentiles, they had no Old Testament frame of reference of a Messiah and Israel, all those things. And so, again, they're just trying to figure out, how, how, what do we do with this? I mean, this is, a, this is a dramatic event, so it must be 
that Zeus and Hermes have, have come down and are, have done this miracle. Now, what is helpful in doing a little uh, reading on this is to uh, understand why they jumped to this conclusion. And one thing that is helpful that uh, people that are uh, much, much smarter than I brought this out in, uh, in uh, their uh, commentaries on this passage is that there was a, a Roman uh, a story, actually a Roman poet by the name of Ovid. Just hang with me for a minute. It'll, it'll kind of put two and two together a little bit. And this Roman poet who wrote Roman stories and of these mythological Roman gods and all this wrote a story about Zeus and Hermes. And they had once visited a, a valley. Of course, in case you don't know, this is entirely fictional. There are no Roman gods, right? So this is part of their culture. And so this guy wrote this story and wrote about Zeus and Hermes that had once visited a valley near Lystra, where this is taking place, where Paul and Barnabas are. And Zeus and Hermes went from door to door, but no one invited them in. And finally, they came to a cottage of a very poor couple who took them in fed them, and gave them a bed for the night, not knowing that they were gods, okay? And because of their kind hospitality, Zeus and Hermes, these two gods, turned this poor couple's cottage into a golden roof temple, but they destroyed the selfish people who had refused to take them in. Now, do you get why they responded so quickly the way they did? They didn't want to make that same mistake again, right? I mean, they were like, hey, let's, let's celebrate this. Zeus and Hermes are back in town. The boys are back in town. I know some of you are humming that song right now, all right? Uh, so they ran to the priests. They ran and, you know, got him. And, of course, you know, he cleaned out his refrigerator and bringing all the animals, sacrifice. And, boy, it must have been a real letdown when they found out that these Roman gods were just ordinary guys, right? Imagine what this could have done for the economy. Hey, come to Lystra. We've got two of our own gods that are visiting and hanging out here. Well, it didn't work out that way. And Paul, uh, what did they do? Uh, they began telling them that they were mere men who had a nature just like them. Look at verse 15. Picks up right after they tore their their clothes and kind of horror that they would be mistaken for this, these gods. And this is what they said. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these obsession with these phony gods, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and that is all, and that and all that is in them. And just again, not really just to make a note here, as I said earlier, when Paul was speaking to the in the synagogue to his fellow Jews, he was able to reason with them and talk to them from the Old Testament. Okay? What does he do here with these Gentiles, these pagans? He begins with God as what? Creator. When we go to Acts chapter 17, and Paul is at uh, uh, the Aragopagus there in, uh, in Athens, in, in, in Greece, or Mars Hill, the old uh, name for it. Uh, where does he begin? He begins by talking about the God who made you, okay? That's the starting point. And just a reminder, 
is that uh, God uh, will oftentimes, while the message, it, Paul always drew a line to Jesus. Ultimately, it always led to Christ and the resurrection. But sometimes different groups and different people, uh, God will give you a wisdom in different starting places of where you should begin and how, where you should talk or how you should engage the conversation, all right? So here, he can't open up and say, well, turn to the book of Malachi. They have to begin with God as creator. But to get back to our point, you know, what Paul and Barnabas could have done, you know, maybe Barnabas just said, look, Paul, I know this is a little weird, but just go with it. Just go with it. I mean, look, these people are gone to so much trouble in bringing all this out. Let's don't blow their bubble now. What's it going to hurt? Okay, they think we're Zeus and Hermes. You know, we know that's all a bunch of phony. But, but you know, hey, at least we're getting the respect that we deserve, right? Not like those guys, you know, our buddies, you know, in the synagogue. At least we're getting some respect. No, as faithful servants, their spontaneous response is because they know who they represented. They know who they represented, and they gave attention to God. So you see, folks, when we are out beyond these doors, and we are, whether however God opens the door, when we're talking Christ to our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, family, we do not represent ourselves. We don't even represent our church. I mean, ultimately, we're representing Christ. And oftentimes, the Lord will bring that to memory when you want to get a little testy, trying to get your coffee at Wawa. And somebody's scratching their lottery tickets, and you got, you're already running five minutes behind. Now, that didn't happen to me recently, but it does, it has happened, right? And, uh, you know, and, and uh, but we represent Christ. And when we talk Christ, when we share Christ, we need, as a faithful servant, we need to be reminded that we represent him, who we represent. A faithful servant knows who they represent. Secondly, the mark of a faithful servant is demonstrated in their resilience, in their resilience. A faithful servant courageously keeps on sharing the gospel in spite of persecution. Look at verse 5 and 7 of Acts 14. When an attempt, we read it earlier, but let's read it again. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to, what? Mistreat them, mistreat Paul and Barnabas, and stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. I love that. They didn't sit around and just say, you know, oh, let's just give the Lord thanks that they're coming after us. They got real spiritual and said, you know what, let's get out of town. I mean, listen... Um, there's nothing real spiritual about just waiting, right? Um, I remember uh, uh, my uncle who loved the Lord and did great things in ministry one time, and I think he was, I think he was kidding, but you never know, uh, with him. And it talked about, you know, how Jesus said, turn, if somebody strikes you, you turn the other cheek. And he always said, but it doesn't say you have to let him hit you there, all right? It just says turn the other cheek. So now don't take that as some rule or anything, getting fights. But what did they do? They fled. They got out of there. But look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. What did they continue to do? They continued. Here they are getting attacked or being threatened with attack. They've already faced, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of these issues. But what did they do? They continued to preach the gospel. They had resilience and persistence in preaching the gospel. 
How do we do it? What do we do? Do we fear? Of course we do. We, we, don't, we don't enjoy pushback. We don't like that when we're trying to share something precious to us about Christ. Then we get pushback. We, we withdraw. Nobody loves rejection. Nobody loves mockery, right? I hope you don't. Nobody loves the threat of a job. If you don't quit this being this Jesus freak around the office, maybe you just had some little thing on your desk that had a scripture on it. All of a sudden, now you're marked, you know, as a person. And, uh, and, and, and you, you know, you begin to weigh this out. I believe God gives us wisdom and we're to use timing. And I think we should, as Paul and Barnabas, use different approaches. When they talk to different people, I think there's wisdom in that, right? Different entries, allowing the Holy Spirit, open doors. We, we understand all that. But the bottom line is Jesus himself made it abundantly clear and just one sampling, and just listen, it won't be on the screen. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, you will be hated for my name's sake. He didn't say you'll be disliked. He said what? You'll be hated for my name's sake. And then he says uh, in, in verse 25, that a disciple is not above his master. Why will you be persecuted? Now, see, that's a little, that's a little awkward for us here as Americans because, let's be honest, we, we really don't, when we think about persecution, we're th- we should think, we're thinking about our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Vietnam and China. You know, we, we, China gets a free ride, but don't, don't, don't forget, they're, they're still persecuting the church intensely in China uh, and other countries, Egypt and Iran and, and other places where uh, the threat against uh, the gospel and Christianity. But I love what uh, one Chinese uh, brother said about the persecution that they faced in China. Uh, he said, we're like a nail. The harder you hit us, the deeper we go. Do we have that kind of resilience? Do we have that kind of response that the harder you come at us, the deeper we go? Are we like, remember the parable of the soils? That one of the, the, one of the seeds that fell on the soil and there was, there was strife and, and, and uh, you know, attack against and, and, they, and they, you know, they abandoned uh, Christ. That was the parallel of what Jesus was doing there. Do we abandon Christ? We may not, you know, I'm not saying abandon him in a, an eternal sense, but we, we become, we become um, uh, unaffected or, or unaffected. What, what's the word I want to say? We become affected. Uh, what's the word I'm trying to use? My mind just went blank. Uh, we re- we're rendered ineffective. Thank you. I'll have to edit that out. Had four words trying to get out at the same time, and that's always dangerous. You know, it's uh, again maybe just make a little note in it. Uh, when I was I, I wrote this that Matthew 10 scripture down uh, this morning in my notes, and I looked above it, and in verse 20, just maybe. Uh, mark this somewhere. You don't look at it. Let me just read it. But when Jesus said in verse 24, you'll be hated for my name's sake and a disciple is not above his master. If you go right above that, Jesus clearly explains why, because he said, it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Don't take it personally. What are they rejecting? They're rejecting God speaking through you. What you may see as a reaction against you, assuming you're not being rude and I'm not, you know, and all those things. But, but what, what they're reacting against, they're reacting against the Spirit of God speaking through you and the rejection of that. So we should not be surprised. 
Most of us certainly have not known any persecution that compares to Paul and Barnabas. But how you respond, how you will, uh, because you will be tested, you will be tested, determines your faithfulness as a servant of Christ. None of us are prone and enjoy getting hurt, and, and, but our response is to quit. Paul and Barnabas were faithful servants because they didn't quit. So, so God will give us strength. God will give us resilience to continue to be faithful, to continue to pray against those strongholds of people in your life and coworkers or friends or neighbors who need desperately to know Christ. Be resilient. Be a faithful servant. Thirdly, the mark of a faithful servant is evidenced in their remembrance. What are they remembering? A faithful servant remembers to strengthen and encourage other Christians facing trials and difficulties in their Christian life. That's what we see in verse 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They, they, they made their way back. And as they made their way back, verse 22, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and doing what? Encouraging them to continue in the faith. These are converts they had made in this first sweep of the gospel across uh, Cyprus and the, this area, and they were encouraging them as they made their way back. They were revisiting and seeing these converts, and they were encouraging them to continue in the faith. And notice what they were saying, and saying that through many tribulations, you could say persecutions, we must enter the kingdom of God. The New Living Translation, I don't think I have it on the screen, but it, it says it this way. The New Living Translation says how they encourage them to continue in the faith, reminding, reminding them that they must suffer many hardships. Okay, So what are they doing? They're encouraging. A faithful servant remembers, it's evidence in remembering, other believers who are having other uh, are going through similar trials and similar issues, but it's also remembering that things that God has taught you, that God has led you to bring understanding. God is not wanting you just to kind of hold that off to yourself, but God has given these experiences and this understanding so that you in turn can encourage other believers in the faith, right? That's why, again, body life in the church is so important. That's why it's so effective in small group ministry when you guys are connecting and building relationships because you're encouraging and strengthening one another. Now, Paul Barnabas, uh, his very name means what? Encourager, son of encouragement. So that came quite naturally for him. And so here they are. They've gathered up a group of converts now, and they're wanting to go back and strengthen them because they know the storms that are coming. They know the trials that are coming. And so they're going back and telling them and encouraging them to continue in the faith. Here, faithful servants are always on the lookout for ways to encourage and serve others. You know, we oftentimes call this discipleship. Discipleship isn't going through, you know, four little books and filling, you know, words and sentences, and we call that discipleship. No, discipleship means somebody who is older and more seasoned in their walk of faith can bring someone alongside 
who is younger and growing in the faith and to be an encourager and strengthening. They remember. What do we remember? They remember what it was like when I was a new believer. I grew up in a setting where there was a lot of well-intentioned people doing a lot of well-intentioned things, but I never really had anybody that took the time to disciple me, to walk with me as an older seasoned brother uh, in the Christian faith. I think that's one of the keys that God has committed to us to do. Go into all the world and make converts. What does it say? Go into all the world and as you are going, literally the Greek says, as you are going, do what? Make disciples, followers, not fans, followers of Christ. And so Paul and Barnabas didn't just send in their monthly report and said, hey, let's take the red eye back home. Let's, we don't want to go back through. We, we've done our part. We've gone in and evangelized, and you know what? We're going to leave that for somebody else. No, they took the time knowing that they probably would and could encounter persecution because as God was converting and bringing many to faith in Christ, communities and situations were being stirred up. We'll see that several times in the book of Acts, Okay. I like a quote that uh, I thought of something John Wesley said, another faithful servant of God in connection with this. It It just fit in here. John Wesley said, Do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. And I think that's a good word for us as we remember others that are needing encouragement. Why? You know, one of the most effective tools that Satan has to cripple believers in general, but especially new believers, is to send them trials. What did I sign up for? Are you, I thought when I became a Christian, I would never have any troubles. That's what the guy with the big hair on TV said. Listen, when you change teams from the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of light, guess what? You're going to stir up trouble. Satan can't do anything to steal your salvation, but you know what he can do? He can throw every dart he can. He can bring trials. He can bring. And again, Jesus said, don't be shocked when these things happen. I always find it interesting in Luke 4. That right after that glorious moment when Jesus was baptized by John uh, in the river Jordan and the voice of the Father came from heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And there was that dramatic, glorious moment. Luke 4, what's the very next thing that happens? And the Spirit, not the devil, the Spirit drove him, sent him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 8, Jesus and his disciples were in the boat crossing over the Sea of Galilee and a great storm hit. Remember that? And the thing we need to be reminded of is just because Jesus was in the boat didn't prevent the storm from coming. Just because Jesus is in your boat isn't going to keep the storms of life Away.
One of the things that I think is worth noting very briefly in verse 23 in connection to this encouragement. And this is not on the screen, but notice what Paul and Barnabas did. It says, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them unto the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. One of the ways that I think you see the faithful servants of Paul and Barnabas encouraging and strengthening believers is they made sure that they appointed elders. They had adequate leadership to lead the church. When there is not godly leadership within the body, when there is not a structure in which the spiritual life is going to grow and prosper because of the order of leadership that God establishes in the church, and one of the things that they did to ensure that is they appointed elders. Notice elders is plural. It's not singular. Okay, Elders is always plural. It's always a team. And so they made sure that one of the ways to strengthen, to remember to strengthen and encourage the believers, is they appointed leaders who would be there after Paul and Barnabas left. That there would be leaders who would oversee the direction of the church, who would oversee the discipling of the church, who would oversee the growth of these new converts in this body. When you don't have biblical leadership in a church who cannot strengthen and encourage the believers, when there's a lack of mature leadership, you know what you have? You have dysfunctionality. And you know what kind of disciples you produce? Dysfunctional disciples. And you have chaos. We don't want that. Fourthly, the mark of a faithful servant is seen in what makes them rejoice. This is similar to the first thing we said, but a, but a different, different example here. A faithful servant gives credit to God for what he does through him, what God does through him. Now, here's, here's the difference. Earlier, we talked about giving glory to God. That was in the context of referencing it to unbelievers. Now, what we find in verse 27 is that Paul and Barnabas are reporting back to the church who sent them out. Look at verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, that means there was an identifiable body that identified as this local church. Some of you know who Vance Havner is. Anybody ever heard of Vance Havner? Old country preacher, just fun to listen to. But he said, some people believe that the doctrine of the invisible church means being invisible at church. And uh, we certainly don't see that here. So it was a gathered church together. And what did they do? They declared all that Paul and Barnabas did. Is that what it says? No. They rejoiced because they declared all that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith. So a faithful servant is seen in what makes them rejoice. And when they talk about the work of God being done in them, they didn't report on the things that all the accomplishments they did. They gave and rejoiced at what God did through them. I like something I remember John MacArthur 
has said, and it was something his father told him, and listen to this, when John MacArthur was a young, his father was a pastor and a great Bible teacher, and John MacArthur's father told him as a young minister, I never forgot it, he says, beware of the pastor, the preacher, the minister, beware of the minister who is the hero of their own stories. We live in a Christian culture that is obsessed with personalities. We create movie stars out of preachers, celebrities, followings, groupies. I like something years ago I read of... uh, one of the leaders of what was the Moravian church movement, which was around the late 1400s, started in the 1400s. A man by the name of Count Zinzendorf lived in the early 1700s, and he was a leader in the Moravian church revival that God used dramatically in different parts of Europe to bring the gospel. And Count Zinzendorf, who was over the training of missionaries, that were part of this revival, told his missionaries in order to encourage them to follow God's call and enter the mission field with no thought of obtaining honor for themselves, gave this quote. He told them, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Do you get what he's saying there? It's not about you. Preach the gospel, Live a life to the glory of God, and when you're done on this earth, the only thing that should be remembered is the Christ that you served. It's not about you. It's not about me. You see, the reason that's harsh is because, again, we have such a, we have such a culture that is so focused about, around us. And that kind of self-sacrificing Mentality is so foreign to our thought. Colossians 3.3 says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is my life? My life is in Christ. What is good in my life? Christ. What should deserve credit? Christ. What's worth glorifying? Christ. I think Paul was getting at that when he said, I counted all things as loss, as garbage, that I might gain Christ. Reminds me of what John the Baptist said when he said, He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. I'm going to skip the fifth one. And I want to conclude by sharing with you somebody that maybe most of you have never heard of, a man by the name of William Carey. William Carey was a young man in England in the late, in the late 1780s, 1780s. And when he became converted, he was obsessed with the gospel and it going beyond the British Isles and the British borders and taking God's word to every nation. Carey kept urging his fellow pastors that they need to be committed to taking the gospel to the nations. 
one elder pastor snapped at him one time and had some very bad theology when he said, young man, apparently in some kind of minister's meeting, he said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. See, that's a hyper-Calvinistic view that we don't subscribe to, as though it's we just kind of sit and God acts. No, God uses us. God uses people. He uses us proclaiming the gospel. There's a balance, truth. William Carey, what's fascinating about it is he left school at the age of 12 and got a job making shoes. They called it a cobbler. He was not educationally qualified to do much of anything, but God, at a very early age, gave him a gift of languages. I mean, at 10, 11, 12 years of age, he taught himself to read the New Testament in Greek. He learned Latin, teaching himself. When he was preparing for his ordination as a Baptist pastor in 1785, he was rejected the first time he presented himself as a ministerial candidate. William Carey's concern was brought to light when he published a a paper or a book called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians. Kind of a snappy title, right? No. Uh, But here's what he said. He said the Great Commission was not something that was exclusively for the apostles. The Great Commission was a Great Commission for all followers of Christ. And so other like-minded ministers, they formed a missions society, and they commissioned William Carey as the first missionary to be sent to India, or Burma, but in India. Carey and his wife, while in India, witnessed three of their children who died there. His wife, his first wife, because he had two that died there on the mission field, Dorothy, his first wife, while they were on the mission field, not only saw the death of three of their children at a very early age or at birth, but she progressively lost her mind. Here he is there trying to serve Jesus, and his wife progressively lost her mind to where she would go out into the streets and be screaming that he was having an affair, and she just she was very ill with mental illness. She was sent back to the States to receive medical care and eventually died. William Carey spent about seven years. Now remember, this is this is uh, this is late, this is early 1800s, okay? He spent seven years in India before he ever saw his first convert. And then there was persecution of anybody that became a a Christian. Not only that, he was getting pushback by the British East India Company, who was Uh, India was a colony, basically, of the British Empire, and they were controlling. And they did not want to disturb the status quo there 
by missionaries coming there and talking about Christ. But, but William Carey began to work on developing the New Testament in one of the languages, ultimately in multiple languages, that were spoken there in India. And after he did this enormous work, no backup, no Dropbox, there was a fire that destroyed the printing press in 15 years of his handwritten, copious translation work of developing the New Testament in the language. So what did he do? He didn't quit. He didn't get on a ship and say, I'm done. You know what he did? His team, after they rebuilt the printing house, they got back to work and started all over, and in seven years finished what was all destroyed. His attitude was always to remain focused on the work that Christ had commissioned him to do. He was obsessed with making an impact for Jesus Christ. When he said this, he said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. There was attacks of malaria, cholera, impoverished living conditions. The missionary society that was supporting him wasn't sending enough money. He actually had to get outside employment just to make ends meet. And you might ask yourself, was it worth it? Carrie's team... By the way, he was over there 40 years before he ever made a trip back to the States. Carey's team, over the time he was there, translated the Bible in 34 Asian languages, compiled dictionaries in various languages that are still authoritative languages respected by linguists today. Sanskrit, Marahati, Punjabi, Telugu, some of you know those languages, speak them. He started an influential college, which today, if you Wikipedia it, is identified as the oldest college in India that is still operating today. His team planted numerous churches, established 19 mission training centers in India, formed hundreds of rural schools that did something very rare in that culture and that encouraged girls to get an education, something the Indian culture was very much against printed the first Indian newspaper, many, many more accomplishments. But equally important, William Carey was committed to the Great Commission, committed to the gospel of Christ. His life inspired tens of thousands to give themselves for the spread of the gospel. Now listen as I bring this to a close. On his deathbed, he was speaking with a friend, and he asked the friend if people had been talking about his life or his legacy. And the friend confirmed and said, yes, many people revered him and admired him. And so naturally, there were many that spoke well of him. And William Carey responded on his deathbed to his friend and said this, quote, you have been saying much about Dr. Carey and his work, but when I am gone, say nothing about William Carey and speak only about William Carey's Savior." That is a faithful servant of Christ. And so Paul and Barnabas, William Carey, are faithful servants of Christ. I want to be a faithful servant.